Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. When you think of insomnia, you probably only really think of one thing, not sleeping. You picture someone lying on their back in bed, fruitlessly counting sheep, or counting to 100, or trying to remember all the lyrics to, One Week, by the Barenaked Ladies, until they finally pass out. And yeah, it's like that, for the first night or two. But once you realize that your insomnia is more than a blip, that you are now part of the 10% of the adult population who suffer from chronic insomnia, something changes. You realize that you can't just spend six hours every night staring at the ceiling until it's time to get up for work. And that, my friend, is when stuff starts to get weird. I should know, I suffered through two years of chronic insomnia, a time when I averaged couple of hours of sleep a night if I was lucky and some nights no sleep at all. During those years, I noticed that my life, and the lives of many fellow insomniacs I spoke with, took on a Jekyll and Hyde split and began to hate people who sleep. During the day, you're a, sleepy, worker, friend, partner, mother, whatever. At work, you send incoherent emails but late at night, you are someone who makes ridiculous sleep deprivation decisions, like cutting your own bangs with kitchen scissors or signing up for Esperanto language lessons or Google everything and then you pay a visit to Miss. Kitty Spanking Parlor, you develop an online shopping habit and you refresh social media when there is nothing to refresh and wonder what that weird sound was. Basically, in the wee hours of the morning, you start having paranoid thoughts about the weird late nightlife of your neighbor and that is the moment that you are a total unhinged weirdo who has forgotten how to dress yourself and start making questionable interior decorating decisions. And it's kind of hilarious. After you have tried all the bizarre sleep cures and tried sleeping on the floor hoping for a miracle cure, is the moment that you realize that you have literally have forgotten how sleeping works. Yeah, it's sometimes tough to find the humor in such a dire affliction. But sometimes, as you spend your tenth straight night chugging Eastcall like it's vitamin water and googling, can coconut oil, physical therapy, Legos cure insomnia, you have to laugh, but not too hard, that Eastcall will really stain your pajamas. The space billionaires are leaving Earth's orbit in the same mess they've left the planet. So how about they clean it up? Debris is becoming a serious problem in space. Sure, we get the mega-rich don't want us following them to Mars or the Moon, but instead of having an intergalactic D**-K-sizing contest, couldn't they clear up this space junk? Not only is the junk, metal objects that flake off satellites, spaceships and other orbital debris, literally, out of sight, out of mind, but few are even willing to conceptualize the cleanup of such a mess, subconsciously understanding that not only did they play no part in creating it, they've never been to space, much less crossed paths with those who have. 
Worse, as the right stuff of which astronauts were legendarily made back when every kid wanted to be one was replaced by the fat bank accounts that have slowly taken over from talent as the prerequisite for every career, a set of individuals who positively glisten with the unhealthy glow of excess money have taken over stewardship of space, junk and all. Such a person is written off as a human sore whose only redeeming value to society is their money, and scorned, because despite the quintessentially American worship of the almighty dollar, they push the limit to the point that even the most devout disciples at the Temple of Plastic are hesitant to pay them homage. Few fit the label so well as Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson, the three space travel-obsessed billionaires whose overwhelming wealth does not nearly compensate for the unpleasant nature they evince as people. Bezos not only took over the book sales industry completely, for example, but then began flexing his muscles by removing books from sale in a way that made him essentially impossible to obtain, a moustache-twirling bit of evil that falls somewhere between puppy-kicking and candy theft from babies in terms of gratuity. Branson's smile is so over-rehearsed one almost pities him, until you remember that he spends his billions on self-aggrandizing adventure stunts, odious political displays, and can't see something he admires without wanting to slap not his name, but the word virgin on it, as if daring interlocutors to ask whether he's compensating for something. The name actually comes from all members of his first company Virgin Records being new at business, according to Branson, who was not, in fact, new at business at the time. And Elon Musk, who for many flies under the radar by affecting the look of a Batman villain rather than a boardroom reptile or spray-tanned glad-hander, nevertheless is determined to open a window into our most secret thoughts via his Neuralink project pitched as a way to help the disabled communicate, in the same breath as it's gushed it will be installed by an AI-enabled robot, keeping in mind that AI, for all its artificiality, is still programmed by humans, who make lots of mistakes installing their so-called intelligence. While they help make a mess out of society, all three men are also making a mess out of space, leaving a trail of hardware, broken up rockets, and even disjointed international relations in their wake. Musk's 5G satellite network hopes to deliver Internet access to half a million people within the next year and ultimately plans to launch 50,000 satellites, literally blanketing the Earth with its Internet services. Like Amazon's monopoly over the bookselling industry, Musk seems to have his eyes dead set on becoming the one and only deliverer of Internet services to certain hard-to-reach places, meaning that if some user should post something unflattering about him, or wreck some deal he has poised to go through the following day, they might find their service goes down, and can't be restored. Point at sky and plug-in sounds like an easy enough installation tactic for the ground antenna, but Musk's Starlink project runs off proprietary military technology, not a microwave. 
Branson at least tried to deflect some criticism of his insane spending levels by suggesting space travel should be available to everyone eventually, and bringing some of his employees along for the ride. Bezos brought his brother and reached for the social justice brass ring by taking 82 year old Wally Funk, trained as an astronaut during a women only program during the 1960s but never actually given the chance to blast off. He compensated for his apparent failure to secure real astronaut wings by coming off as the biggest douchebag ever to approach the great beyond, smarmily thanking Amazon customers for funding his Blue Origin rocket. Certainly, he owes them that gratitude, but no one wants to be reminded of that as the money is literally burning off into the atmosphere. To infinity and begone, Bezos. But returning to the subject of space junk, and the billionaires who have seized the future of space for themselves as the once muscular American public sector is no longer capable of launching space shuttles or building rocket engines. NASA estimates there are about 23,000 pieces of debris larger than 10 cm flying through space and 500,000 pieces smaller than that size, and they move so fast that they can cause serious damage if they come into contact with a satellite or other man-made spacecraft. Given that most satellites are launched with the understanding that when they cease to be useful they will just drift through space eternally, it's easy to see how the Earth's orbit got so clogged, but hard to grasp how that might be fixed. Given all three men's unshakable thirst for monopolization of whatever industry holds their attention, it would be the least they could do to take some of their money and start cleaning up not only their own mess, particularly Musk's overpopulation of the night sky with persistent little lights ensuring you can get on Facebook from Antarctica, but the messes that came before, when exploring space was about discovery rather than ego and the spirit of competition, while present, was focused more on that exploration than a glorified D**K-sizing contest. If they can afford to turn space into a billionaire's playground, they can afford to keep it clean for everybody else. Musk has even hinted at this in his plans for a Martian colony, noting that human life on Earth could wink out at any moment. Given there's no chance of him building enough rockets to rescue every human, animal, and plant on Earth, the least of his responsibilities, and Bezos and Branson's, should be to revive the Enlightenment concept of noblesse oblige, in which the wealthy take responsibility for those below themselves socially, both out of self-interest, no one wants their head rolling into the streets the next time the poor remember who's got all the money, and to create a better world. World. Musk, Branson, and Bezos could at the very least clean up the space junk orbiting the planet. The Department of Defense does this on a smaller level, but the private sector has developed its skills more thoroughly, since most companies can't just come hat in hand back to the taxpayer complaining that the latest space shuttle hit the equivalent of the Titanic's iceberg and billions of dollars have been flushed down the drain. That's one choice, at least.
The space billionaires could also just do what actress Jamila Jamil suggested last week and substitute, which billionaire saved healthcare, or, which billionaire housed the most homeless people, for their latest whose D** is bigger competition. The trio doesn't seem to like people very much, though, as they're clearly flying off to space to get away from us. A space cleanup would give them a chance to save face without having to interact with the hoi polloi. How's about it, then, boys? Make some space for the rest of us to build escape pods. And pay your taxes so we can publicly fund this getaway. We don't like sharing a planet with you, either. Let us hear how our hero is getting along. Two more months passed and the shelf brought many customers into the crystal shop. The boy estimated that if he worked for six more months, he could return to Spain and buy 60 sheep, and yet another 60. In less than a year, he would have doubled his flock, and he would be able to do business with the Arabs because he was now able to speak their strange language. Since that morning in the marketplace, he had never again made use of Urim and Thummim, because Egypt was now just as distant a dream for him as was Mecca for the merchant. Anyway, the boy had become happy in his work and thought all the time about the day when he would disembark at Tarifa as a winner. You must always know what it is that you want, the old king had said. The boy knew and was now working towards it. Maybe it was his treasure to have wound up in that strange land, met up with a thief and doubled the size of his flock without spending a cent. He was proud of himself, he had learned some important things like how to deal in crystal, and about the language without words, and about omens. One afternoon he had seen a man at the top of the hill, complaining that it was impossible to find a decent place to get something to drink after such a climb. The boy, accustomed to recognising omens, spoke to the merchant. Let's sell tea to the people who climb the hill. Lots of places sell tea around here, the merchant said but we could sell tea in crystal glasses. The people will enjoy the tea and want to buy the glasses. I've been told that beauty is the great seducer of men. The merchant didn't respond, but that afternoon, after saying his prayers and closing the shop, he invited the boy to sit with him and share his hookah, that strange pipe used by the Arabs. I've had this shop for thirty years, the old merchant said. If we serve tea in crystal, the shop's going to expand and then I'll have to change my way of life. Well, isn't that good? I'm already used to the way things are. The shop is exactly the size I always wanted it to be. I don't want anything else in life. But you're forcing me to look at wealth and at horizons I've never known. Now that I've seen them, and now that I see how immense my possibilities are, I'm going to feel worse than I did before you arrived because I know the things I should be able to accomplish, and I don't want to do so. They went on smoking the pipe for a while as the sun began to set. Maktoub, the merchant said finally. What does that mean? You would have to have been born an Arab to understand, he answered. But in your language it would be something like, it is written. And as he smothered the coals in the hookah, he told the boy that he could begin to sell tea in the crystal glasses. Sometimes there's just no way to hold back the river. The men climbed the hill, and they were tired when they reached the top. 
but there they saw a crystal shop that offered refreshing mint tea. They went in to drink the tea, which was served in beautiful crystal glasses. My wife never thought of this, said one, and he bought some crystal. He was entertaining guests that night, and the guests would be impressed by the beauty of the glassware. A second man remarked that tea was always more delicious when it was served in crystal because the aroma was retained. A third said that it was a tradition in the Orient to use crystal glasses for tea because it had magical powers. Before long the news spread, and a great many people began to climb the hill to see the shop that was doing something new in a trade that was so old. Other shops were opened that served tea and crystal, but they weren't at the top of a hill, and they had little business. Eventually the merchant had to hire two more employees. He began to import enormous quantities of tea along with his crystal, and his shop was sought out by men and women with a thirst for things new. And in that way, the months passed. The boy awoke before dawn. It had been eleven months and nine days since he had first set foot on the African continent. He dressed in his Arabian clothing of white linen, bought especially for this day. He put his headcloth in place and secured it with a ring made of camel skin. Wearing his new sandals, he descended the stairs silently. The city was still sleeping. He prepared himself a sandwich and drank some hot tea from a crystal glass. Then he sat in the sun-filled doorway, smoking the hookah. He smoked in silence, thinking of nothing and listening to the sound of the wind that brought the scent of the desert. When he had finished his smoke, he reached into one of his pockets and sat there for a few moments regarding what he had withdrawn. It was a bundle of money, enough to buy himself a hundred and twenty sheep, a return ticket, and a license to import products from Africa into his own country. He waited patiently for the merchant to awaken and open the shop. Then the two went off to have some more tea. I'm leaving today, said the boy. I have the money I need to buy my sheep. And you have the money you need to go to Mecca. The old man said nothing. Will you give me your blessing? asked the boy. You have helped me. The man continued to prepare his tea, saying nothing. Then he turned to the boy. I am proud of you, he said. You brought a new feeling into my crystal shop. But you know that I'm not going to go to Mecca, just as you know that you're not going to buy your sheep. Who told you that? asked the boy, startled. Maktoub, said the old crystal merchant and he gave the boy his blessing. The boy went to his room and packed his belongings. They filled three sacks. As he was leaving, he saw in the corner of his room his old shepherd's pouch. It was bunched up, and he had hardly thought of it for a long time. As he took his jacket out of the pouch, thinking to give it to someone in the street, the two stones fell to the floor, Urim and Thummim. It made the boy think of the old king, and it startled him to realize how long it had been since he had thought of him. For nearly a year he had been working incessantly, thinking only of putting aside enough money so that he could return to Spain with pride. Never stop dreaming, the old king had said. Follow the omens. The boy picked up Urim and Thummim, and once again had the strange sensation that the old king was nearby. He had worked hard for a year, and the omens were that it was time to go. 
I'm going to go back to doing just what I did before, the boy thought, even though the sheep didn't teach me how to speak Arabic. But the sheep had taught him something even more important, that there was a language in the world that everyone understood, a language the boy had used throughout the time that he was trying to improve things at the shop. It was the language of enthusiasm, of things accomplished with love and purpose, and as part of a search for something believed in and desired. Tangier was no longer a strange city, and he felt that, just as he had conquered this place, he could conquer the world. When you want something, all the universe conspires to help you achieve it, the old king had said. But the old king hadn't said anything about being robbed, or about endless deserts, or about people who know what their dreams are but don't want to realise them. The old king hadn't told him that the pyramids were just a pile of stones, or that anyone could build one in his backyard. And he had forgotten to mention that when you have enough money to buy a flock larger than the one you had before, you should buy it. The boy picked up his pouch and put it with his other things. He went down the stairs and found the merchant waiting on a foreign couple, while two other customers walked about the shop drinking tea from crystal glasses. It was more activity than usual for this time of the morning. From where he stood, he saw for the first time that the old merchant's hair was very much like the hair of the old king. He remembered the smile of the sweet seller on his first day in Tangier, when he had nothing to eat and nowhere to go. That smile had also been like the old king's smile. It's almost as if he had been here and left his mark, he thought. And yet none of these people has ever met the old king. On the other hand, he said that he always appeared to help those who were trying to realise their destiny. He left without saying goodbye to the crystal merchant. He didn't want to cry with the other people there. He was going to miss the place and all the good things he had learned. He was more confident in himself, though, and felt as though he could conquer the world. But I'm going back to the fields that I know, to take care of my flock again. He said that to himself with certainty, but he was no longer happy with his decision. He had worked for an entire year to make a dream come true, and that dream, minute by minute, was becoming less important. Maybe because that wasn't really his dream. Who knows? Maybe it's better to be like the crystal merchant, never go to Mecca and just go through life wanting to do so, the boy thought, again trying to convince himself. But as he held Urim and Thummim in his hand, they had transmitted to him the strength and will of the old king. By coincidence, or maybe it was an omen, the boy came to the bar he had entered on his first day there. The thief wasn't there, and the owner brought him a cup of tea. I can always go back to being a shepherd, the boy thought. I learned how to care for sheep, and I haven't forgotten how that's done. But maybe I'll never have another chance to get to the pyramids in Egypt. The old man wore a breastplate of gold and he knew about my past. He really was a king, a wise king. The hills of Andalusia were only two hours away, but there was an entire desert between him and the pyramids. Yet the boy felt that there was another way to regard his situation. He was actually two hours closer to his treasure. The fact that the two hours had stretched into an entire year didn't matter. He suddenly felt tremendously happy. He could always go back to being a shepherd. He could always become a crystal salesman again. Maybe the world had other hidden treasures, but he had a dream, 
and he had met with a king. That doesn't happen to just anyone. He was planning as he left the bar. He had remembered that one of the crystal merchant's suppliers transported his crystal by means of caravans that crossed the desert. He held Urim and Thummim in his hand. Because of those two stones, he was once again on the way to his treasure. I am always nearby when someone wants to realize their destiny, the old king had told him. What could it cost to go over to the supplier's warehouse and find out if the pyramids were really that far away? The Englishman was sitting on a bench in a structure that smelled of animals, sweat and dust. It was part warehouse, part corral. I never thought I'd end up in a place like this, he thought as he leafed through the pages of a chemical journal. Ten years at the university and here I am in a corral. But he had to move on. He believed in omens. All his life and all his studies were aimed at finding the one true language of the universe. First he had studied Esperanto, then the world's religions, and now it was alchemy. He had tried in vain to establish a relationship with an alchemist. But the alchemists were strange people who thought only about themselves and almost always refused to help him. He had already spent much of the fortune left to him by his father fruitlessly seeking the philosopher's stone. He had spent enormous amounts of time at the great libraries of the world and had purchased all the rarest and most important volumes on alchemy. In one, he had read that many years ago a famous Arabian alchemist had visited Europe. It was said that he was more than 200 years old and that he had discovered the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. The Englishman had been profoundly impressed by the story, but he would never have thought it more than just a myth had not a friend of his returning from an archaeological expedition in the desert, told him about an Arab that was possessed of exceptional powers. He lives at the Al-Fayyum Oasis, his friend had said, and people say that he's 200 years old and is able to transform any metal into gold. The Englishman could not contain his excitement. He cancelled all his commitments and pulled together the most important of his books, and now here he was, sitting inside a dusty, smelly warehouse. Outside, a huge caravan was being prepared for a crossing of the Sahara and was scheduled to pass through Al-Fayyum. I'm going to find that damned alchemist, the Englishman thought, and the odour of the animals became a bit more tolerable. A young Arab, also loaded down with baggage, entered and greeted the Englishman. Where are you bound? asked the young Arab. I'm going into the desert, the man answered turning back to his reading. He didn't want any conversation at this point. What he needed to do was review all that he had learned over the years, because the alchemist would certainly put him to the test. The young Arab took out a book and began to read. The book was written in Spanish. That's good, thought the Englishman. He spoke Spanish better than Arabic, and if this boy was going to Al-Fayyum, there would be someone to talk to when there were no other important things to do. That's strange, the boy thought, as he tried once again to read the burial scene that began the book. I've been trying for two years to read this book, and I never get past these first few pages. Even without a king to provide an interruption, he was unable to concentrate. He still had some doubts about the decision he had made, but he was able to understand one thing. Making a decision was only the beginning of things. When someone makes a decision, he is really diving into a strong current that will carry him to places he had never dreamed of when he first made the decision.
When I decided to seek out my treasure, I never imagined that I'd wind up working in a crystal shop, he thought. And joining this caravan may have been my decision, but where it goes is going to be a mystery to me. Nearby was the Englishman reading a book. He seemed unfriendly and had looked irritated when the boy had entered. They might even have become friends, but the Englishman closed off the conversation. The boy closed his book. He felt that he didn't want to do anything that might make him look like the Englishman. He took Urim and Thummim from his pocket and began playing with them. The stranger shouted, Urim and Thummim! In a flash, the boy put them back in his pocket. They're not for sale, he said. They're not worth much, the Englishman answered. They're only made of rock crystal and there are millions of rock crystals in the earth. But those who know about such things would know that those are Urim and Thummim. I didn't know that they had them in this part of the world. They were given to me as a present by a king, the boy said. The stranger didn't answer. Instead, he put his hand in his pocket and took out two stones that were the same as the boy's. Did you say a king? he asked. I suppose you don't believe that a king would talk to someone like me, a shepherd, the boy said, wanting to end the conversation. Not at all. It was shepherds who were the first to recognize a king that the rest of the world refused to acknowledge, so it's not surprising that kings would talk to shepherds. And he went on, fearing that the boy wouldn't understand what he was talking about. It's in the Bible, the same book that taught me about Urim and Thummim. These stones were the only form of divination permitted by God. The priests carried them in a golden breastplate. The boy was suddenly happy to be there at the warehouse. Maybe this is an omen, said the Englishman, half aloud. Who told you about omens? The boy's interest was increasing by the moment. Everything in life is an omen, said the Englishman, now closing the journal he was reading. There is a universal language understood by everybody but already forgotten. I am in search of that universal language, amongst other things. That's why I'm here. I have to find a man who knows that universal language. An alchemist. The conversation was interrupted by the warehouse boss. You're in luck, you two, the fat Arab said. There's a caravan leaving today for Al-Fayyum. But I'm going to Egypt, the boy said. Al-Fayyum is in Egypt, said the Arab. What kind of Arab are you? That's a good luck omen, the Englishman said after the fat Arab had gone out. If I could, I'd write a huge encyclopedia just about the words luck and coincidence. It's with those words that the universal language is written. He told the boy it was no coincidence that he had met him with Urim and Thummim in his hand. And he asked the boy if he too were in search of the alchemist. I'm looking for treasure, said the boy, and he immediately regretted having said it. But the Englishman appeared not to attach any importance to it. In a way, so am I, he said. I don't even know what alchemy is, the boy was saying, when the warehouse boss called to them to come outside. I'm the leader of the caravan, said a dark-eyed, bearded man. I hold the power of life and death for every person I take with me. The desert is a capricious lady, and sometimes she drives men mad. There were almost 200 people gathered there, and 400 animals, camels, horses, mules, and fowl. In the crowd were women, children, and a number of men with swords at their belts and rifles slung on their shoulders. The Englishman had several suitcases filled with books. 
There was a babble of noise, and the leader had to repeat himself several times for everyone to understand what he was saying. There are a lot of different people here, and each has his own god. But the only god I serve is Allah, and in his name I swear that I will do everything possible once again to win out over the desert. But I want each and every one of you to swear by the god you believe in that you will follow my orders no matter what. In the desert, disobedience means death. There was a murmur from the crowd. Each was swearing quietly to his or her own God. The boy swore to Jesus Christ. The Englishman said nothing. And the murmur lasted longer than a simple vow would have. The people were also praying to heaven for protection. A long note was sounded on a bugle, and everyone mounted up. The boy and the Englishman had bought camels and climbed uncertainly onto their backs. The boy felt sorry for the Englishman's camel, loaded down as he was with the cases of books. There's no such thing as coincidence, said the Englishman, picking up the conversation where it had been interrupted in the warehouse. I'm here because a friend of mine heard of an Arab who... But the caravan began to move, and it was impossible to hear what the Englishman was saying. The boy knew what he was about to describe, though. The mysterious chain that links one thing to another the same chain that had caused him to become a shepherd, that had caused his recurring dream, that had brought him to a city near Africa to find a king and to be robbed. The closer one gets to realizing his destiny, the more that destiny becomes his true reason for being, thought the boy. The caravan moved towards the east. It travelled during the morning, halted when the sun was at its strongest, and resumed late in the afternoon. The boy spoke very little with the Englishman, who spent most of his time with his books. The boy observed in silence the progress of the animals and people across the desert. Now everything was quite different from how it was that day they had set out. Then there had been confusion and shouting, the cries of children and the whinnying of animals, all mixed in with the nervous orders of the guides and the merchants. But in the desert there was only the sound of the eternal wind, and of the hoofbeats of the animals. Even the guides spoke very little to one another. I've crossed these sands many times, said one of the camel drivers one night. But the desert is so huge, and the horizon so distant, that they make a person feel small, as if he should remain silent. The boy understood intuitively what the camel driver meant, even without ever having set foot in the desert before. Whenever he saw the sea or a fire, he fell silent, impressed by their elemental force. I've learned things from the sheep, and I've learned things from crystal, he thought. I can learn something from the desert, too. It seems old and wise. The wind never stopped, and the boy remembered the day he had sat in the fort in Tarifa with this same wind blowing in his face. It reminded him of the wool from his sheep, his sheep who were now seeking food and water in the fields of Andalusia, as they always had. They're not my sheep anymore, he said to himself without nostalgia. They must be used to their new shepherd and have probably already forgotten me. That's good. Creatures like the sheep that are used to travelling know about moving on. He thought of the merchant's daughter and was sure that she had probably married. Perhaps to a baker or to another shepherd who could read and who could tell her exciting stories. After all, he probably wasn't the only one. 
but he was excited at his intuitive understanding of the camel driver's comment. Maybe he was also learning the universal language that deals with the past and the present of all people. Hunches, his mother used to call them. The boy was beginning to understand that intuition is really a sudden immersion of the soul into the universal current of life, where the histories of all people are connected, and we are able to know everything because it's all written there. Maktoub, the boy said, remembering the crystal merchant. The desert was all sand in some stretches and rocky in others. When the caravan was blocked by a boulder, it had to go around it. If there was a large rocky area, they had to make a major detour. In some places, the ground was covered with the salt of dried-up lakes. The animals bulked at such places, and the camel drivers were forced to dismount and unburden their charges. The drivers carried the freight themselves over such treacherous footing and then reloaded the camels. If a guide were to fall ill or die, the camel drivers would draw lots and appoint a new one. But all this happened for one basic reason. No matter how many detours and adjustments it made, the caravan moved towards the same compass point. Once obstacles were overcome, it returned to its course, sighting on a star that indicated the location of the oasis. When people saw that star shining in the morning sky, they knew they were on the right course towards water, palm trees, shelter, and other people. It was only the Englishman who was unaware of all this. He was, for the most part, immersed in reading his books. The boy, too, had his book, and he had tried to read it during the first few days of the journey, but he found it much more interesting to observe the caravan and listen to the wind. As soon as he had learned to know his camel better and to establish a relationship with him, he threw the book away. Although the boy had developed a superstition that each time he opened the book he would learn something important, he decided it was an unnecessary burden. Sometimes their caravan met with another. One always had something that the other needed, as if everything were indeed written by one hand. As they sat around the fire, the camel drivers exchanged information about windstorms, and told stories about the desert. At other times, mysterious hooded men would appear. They were Bedouins, who did surveillance along the caravan route. They provided warnings about thieves and barbarian tribes. They came in silence, and departed the same way, dressed in black garments that showed only their eyes. One night, a camel driver came to the fire where the Englishman and the boy were sitting. There are rumours of tribal wars he told them. The three fell silent. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.